Racism and anti-racism is an incredibly relevant topic right now and can provide some really interesting opportunities, but also challenges for teams and for teamwork. I am so excited to have you listen in on my conversation with one of my incredibly articulate and very insightful colleagues, Forsyth. Stay tuned. Hi, Shannon Waller here, and welcome to a special episode of Team Success. So today I have the absolute honor of talking to my very talented, very articulate colleague, Forsyth. And Forsyth is one of my colleagues from the UK. And what we're going to talk about today is a conversation that is incredibly topical to right now, and it's about... It's about race. It's about ending racism. It's about being anti-racist because Forsyth just happens to be black. So Forsyth, thank you very much for joining me today because we had a couple of conversations and all I could think about when we were talking is, I wish I was recording this because (laughs) you have such a thoughtful, caring perspective on things that I thought would really add to our conversation in terms of team success. So you and I work together at Strategic Coach. And I thought we'd just have a team member to team member conversation about what it's like for you. You know, I'll have some input from my side as well. And we can just talk about how the race issue impacts teamwork. Because I think that's something that, I mean, there's a million conversations going on as they should be. But this is an angle I haven't heard about or read about that much yet. So anyway, first of all, just thank you very much for being willing to do this with me. Yeah, thank you very much, Shannon. I think this is obviously a very important conversation to be had, especially with everything that's going on in the world at the moment in response to the murdering of George Floyd. So I think it's very important for us to have this conversation mm-hmm. just to understand what actions we can take and how to educate ourselves to be better suited to have this conversation and have a positive impact on this movement on a whole. Perfect. I love it. Now, One of the things that I was really struck by, and again, there's so many different starting points for this conversation, but do you mind just kind of giving a little bit of your background? Because you have such an educated perspective, you've educated yourself, and I would love to know if people know a little bit about your background so that it will give context to the conversation that we're going to have. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Nigerian, and both my parents are Nigerian, and I was actually born in Nigeria. So I lived in Nigeria for the first seven years of my life before moving to London here in the UK. My experience with racism can be described as one of a unique experience. A lot of the communities and societies that I've been a part of, a lot of the times I've been one of a few black people in that community and in those societies. So I've really been taken as a responsibility to not only educate myself on the racism that a lot of other black individuals experience on a day-to-day basis, but also being able to communicate that to a lot of my white friends and white colleagues who have more of a privileged upbringing and a privileged background, so aren't as exposed to the day-to-day racism that a lot of other black individuals experience on a day-to-day basis. So kind of taking it as my personal responsibility to educate myself on the struggles that they go through, but also being able to communicate that and educate my friends and the people in my community about the struggles that other black individuals separate from myself experience on a day-to-day basis. So can you articulate what some of those struggles are? Because you've got friends you know, in various communities. So what are some of the struggles that people experience? Yeah, I think some of the struggles that people experience just on a a wider basis is a lot of assumptions and prejudice of what a typical black person is like or what a typical black person is expected to be like. So in terms of, from a perspective of, you know, just what you see in the media and the language that's used to describe black people and the microaggressions that come with that really affects a lot of black people and their mentality and their 
expectancy of how the world treats them, but also from a white perspective, how they expect black people to be and how they expect black people to act, which is why, you know, a lot of times when some white people experience black people who are different and contrary to what they see in the media and a lot of the prejudice that they hear, they make comments like, oh, you're really well-spoken for a black person or you're really articulate for a black person and things like that, which from their perspective is intended to be a compliment based on their experience and knowledge of what black people expected to be like. But the problem with comments and statements like that is it continues to reaffirm just false and incorrect prejudice that black people aren't supposed to be articulate or black people aren't supposed to be well-spoken. And the impact that that has on the white person and the black person is very interesting to me because for the black person, that tells them that, you know, they're not expected to be articulate. They're not expected to act in a certain way, you know, could lead to inferiority complexes. But for the white person as well, it further, as I said, reaffirms the prejudice that for some reason that there should be more articulate or, or better spoken or they should have access to more privileges than the black person. And that tends to happen quite frequently. And as I said, on the microaggression level, a lot of times they're unintentional, aren't supposed to be offensive and people aren't aware that they're partaking in microaggressions, which is why I think that's actually one of the biggest problems when it comes to racism, because it happens so frequently, you know, it's unintentional. So being able to address those microaggressions and taking them out of our day-to-day living, I think is very important. So you, in our previous conversation, completely flipped my thinking about microaggressions. And I was stunned. It just recalibrated my brain in a really powerful way. So can you talk about microaggressions and particularly with regard to the George Floyd situation? Because it was fascinating to me just what my assumptions were and yet the way you articulated it, it changed my thinking. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, with microaggression, the typical definition is an indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. And those microaggressions lead to macroaggression. And what I mean by macroaggression is the examples that we see on the news, such as the murder of George Floyd and, you know, very overt instances of racism, those are macroaggressions. And I think, you know, the average person would agree that they don't agree with someone being murdered for the color of their skin and they don't Mm. agree with someone being disallowed certain privileges based on the color of their skin. And the average person would agree with that. But with microaggressions, they're more subtle, they're unintentional, and they're the examples that I gave you of the backhanded comment saying, you're so eloquent for a black person, or your hair is so beautiful for a black woman, and things like that. And it just happens all the time that people aren't aware of how those microaggressions lead to those macroaggressions. And in the instance of the murder that happened with George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, they would have both experienced microaggressions their entire lives that led up into that incident that made it seem appropriate or acceptable for Derek Chauvin to leave his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes or eight or so minutes. And those microaggressions are things that sort of communicate to Derek, for example, that his life is more worthy than a black person. He can get away with more things than the average black person. Should he commit a crime against a black person, the law will be on his side. And also from the perspective of George Floyd as well, that his life isn't as worthy as his white counterpart. And if there is an incident between himself and a white person that, you know, their system wouldn't be on his side. 
And you see so many examples of so many black people that have been killed by policemen in America and are experienced racism on a day-to-day basis and nothing happens and justice isn't served in their opinion. That again reaffirms to them that their life isn't as worthy as their white counterparts. It goes back to that no one is born a racist. You're taught racism. And I remember when I first heard that, I used to think, you know, how are you taught racism? Is there a school? Is there a class? Or is there a, <laughs> is there a podcast on how to be a racist? Well, of course not. There isn't. And I started educating myself more on how people are taught racism and how people are taught racism is through these microaggressions. Because, you know, as a little kid, or a little black girl, for example, you're told by your teacher that, oh my God, your hair is really beautiful for a black girl. As a young black girl, that tells you that your hair is not supposed to be beautiful and you're not seen by the world as beautiful. And that leads to inferiority complexes. But the same with a little white girl as well. Hearing that, seeing her teacher tell her black friend that her hair is beautiful for a black girl tells her that she's more beautiful than her black friend and that's just one example but there are so many examples of microaggressions in that way that leads to individuals growing up having this perception of the world that just isn't accurate and based on these microaggressions thinking that certain things are more true than others and certain individuals are more gifted than other individuals in certain instances that's how the microaggressions lead to events like George Floyd being murdered and we all contribute to that you know we all contribute to microaggressions and saying things that are well intended aren't meant to be racist at all but reaffirm a prejudice or a stereotype that just isn't the case right and it makes me think as you're talking I mean certainly you know black and black lives matter is 100% the focus right now as it should be but it just strikes me that we have these prejudices about lots of different things and lots of different marginalized groups. And so this is a little bit the way we've been interacting with one another as humans for a very long time. It's that deeper view. Racism can happen amongst various races. So it feels like we just got to dig it out and just (laughs) throw it away or something. Just look at it. It's like we're all humans. We're all people of worth and of value and of matter. And we'll get into systemic in just a moment. But I really appreciate your perspective because it's the microaggressions that lead to macroaggressions. Yeah. That was the complete spin in my head. It was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It makes it somehow okay in that policeman's, Chauvin's head to have that horrible act happen, right? And that was the big twist in my mind, which means it's worthwhile going back to those little subtle things. And before we get into the systemic nature, because I think your view on what's possible is very exciting to me, but let's talk about the work environment a little bit, and we'll get lots of different practical ways of doing things. But do you experience it at work, and have you in past places of employment, or what do you notice? You know, you have friends, obviously, employed. So what do you notice that people can do or be aware of, you know, in their own work environment to prevent microaggressions from happening? Yeah. Absolutely. The first thing that I would say about microaggressions, I think is very important in terms of microaggression in the workplace is that a lot of microaggressions are personalized and different individuals have different responses to different microaggressions and different microaggressions trigger different individuals in different ways. So for example, using the example of you have 
very lovely hair or very beautiful hair for a black woman, you know, most people will deem that as microaggressive and that's just uh, absolutely unacceptable. But to say you have very lovely hair, I like the curls in your hair, for some black women, that might be fine because to them, that's just a matter of fact. I've got curly hair and you like my curly hair and that doesn't trigger them. But for other black women, that could still be triggering because to remember, they've experienced microaggressions their entire lives. So to hear a compliment about their hair can still be triggering for them, you know, based on their experience. So in terms of the workplace, I think being able to call out microaggressions and being able to feel comfortable enough to have conversations around it is so important. So if someone compliments your hair and, you know, all they said was, you've got really lovely hair, I like the curls in your hair. If you find that offensive or you find that triggering, to feel comfortable enough to kind of say, you know, hey, Shannon, I know that wasn't intended to be offensive or derogatory, but personally, that's triggering for myself. So I prefer if you didn't say something like that again in the future. And that should be absolutely fine. That should be normalized. And, you know, in all relationships, you're constantly redefining your boundaries, you know, in your friendships, in your romantic relationships, in your relationships with your family members, you're constantly redefining boundaries. What was acceptable last month might not be acceptable today. And and clearly what was acceptable 10 years ago isn't acceptable today. If my mother tried to hold my hand when we're crossing the street, that wouldn't be acceptable today, but it was acceptable, you know, maybe 10 years ago. It's the same thing in the workplace. You know, you've got to redefine your boundaries. And if someone makes a comment or a compliment that is triggering to yourself, you should feel comfortable enough to be able to call it out. And if you are a colleague that has been called out for, you know, making a microaggression, to not take it personally and just to understand that that is your colleague who cares about you and cares about your relationship, just giving you further insight into their experience and redefining the boundaries. I think it shouldn't be frowned upon. We should feel comfortable to be able to call out microaggressions and just understand what people's boundaries are regarding those. I love that. And that to my mind, like we've done a lot of collaborative way training and coaching, which is, you know, basically listen, (laughs) listen (laughs) first and speak straight. The whole thing about generous listening is really taking it in and just absorbing it, trying not to take it personally. Sometimes that's easier than others, but then also being able to speak straight. And that's actually what leads to a truly collaborative workforce. So be it microaggressions or something else, if someone says something triggering for you, it's like, mm, that's a little triggered by that. And, you know, yeah. and you're talking about a level of communication that most people, well, at least without training, like we've had at Strategic Coach, it's tough to do that. We're not trained actually, you know, we haven't listened to enough podcasts on that to (laughs) educate ourselves in terms of how to actually speak up and define those boundaries. Now, one of the things I appreciated from you is that you're pretty conscious of intent with someone. Can you talk about that for a moment? Because just as a fellow team member, I appreciated your take on that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for myself, intent is extremely important. And if someone doesn't intend to be, harmful or intend to be derogatory you know I tend to be okay with most comments and I'm not easily triggered but I can only speak on my experience and myself as an individual you know I'm not easily triggered and some of the comments that you might make to myself you know might not be triggering to me but it could be triggering to another black person which is why I say it's very important to be able to have those conversations to understand what's acceptable with certain individuals and what isn't acceptable with certain individuals but from my experience you know with the intent I understand that some things are just a matter of fact some things are just you know observations that people might make a comment on so if I have a friend or a colleague that has primarily 
growing up in white environments and white neighborhoods and hasn't really been exposed to a lot of black people and black culture. I'm someone that whilst I am, you know, very westernized, I am very African in some instances as well. And, you know, if my white friend was to make an observation on that and make a comment regarding that, and I understand it's just from a position of curiosity and and due to lack of just knowledge or exposure on that particular subject matter, you know, I don't take any offense to that. So if someone was to say to me, you know, your hair is extremely curly. Why do you need to comb out your hair? Or why do you need to get a haircut? I don't see a difference, for example. You know, I don't take offense to that because I understand, you know, my hair decreasing in height by one centimeter. You might not notice much of a difference, but for myself and a lot of other young black males, it makes a huge difference to their appearance, in their opinion, and, you know, amongst ourselves. So if someone makes that comment to me, I wouldn't be triggered by that because I understand that that just isn't the norm in their society and in their culture. I take it as a personal responsibility, even though I'm not calling all black people to do so, but I take it as a responsibility to kind of educate my friend on why I need to get a haircut every Mm -hmm. Maybe every seven days, which I do is a bit excessive, but you know, why I need to get my hair cut so frequently or why I need to put certain products in my hair and you know, do certain things to my hair because I understand it's not intended to be derogatory or offensive. It's just from a perspective or, or a place of curiosity. And you know, I'm a curious individual myself, so I'll just always take it upon myself to educate them. And I think the intent is extremely important and even with calling out microaggressions as well you know if a colleague says something that you deem to be microaggressive before you you know call it out think of the intent as well because if it wasn't intended to be harmful understand that and in your communication back to that individual you can communicate that and say you know Shannon I appreciate that that was intended to be a compliment or it wasn't intended to be offensive but this is my take on it this is why I'm triggered this is why I'm uncomfortable whereas it's a completely different case if someone is being microaggressive but in a malicious manner saying something like you smell nice for a black person whilst making you know something that's intended to be malicious and how you respond to that in my opinion should be completely different obviously you bring that up with hr and in your comments back to them you know you question it a bit more what do you mean by that and you take a stronger stance but i think intent just adds so much context to the conversation and by understanding the intent it allows you to respond in an appropriate manner and being able to call out microaggressions without having an adverse or harmful effect on the nature of your relationship with that individual well, I love that. You talked about adding context. And I think that's the thing. And as someone who is pretty curious and I've learned pretty naive, oh, I'm just like thinking all the things I probably said that was completely rude <laughs> to me to be. Rudeness is something I have a thing with. So I appreciate that perspective. And it's interesting because the opportunity for enlightenment is so big. I don't know if I'm poking a bruise. Do you know what I know? I don't know if there's a yeah. wound there when I say something. And so someone's saying, hey, that hurts. I actually, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I want to, ouch, why? I'm yeah. to hurt you. You know, it gives me actually an opportunity to understand and to be compassionate and to understand the context that I'm speaking into, which I clearly may not have or clearly didn't. So to look at that as an education, as an opportunity to get closer when the intent is good. When the intent yeah. is not good, you know, yeah. totally opposite. Yeah. Conversation right now is, you know, silence is compliance, which yeah. I think we're now becoming cognizant of 
And that it's not enough to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. And so yeah. I appreciate this conversation, Forsyth, because I feel like this is elevating that conversation. It's how to speak up and how to speak yeah. up in a way that actually builds connection and collaboration and teamwork as opposed to dismantle it and be so polarized. So I just, again, really appreciate your take on this whole thing. Now, there's so many different directions we can go in, <laughs> but, I, but I think that's a really great for day-to-day when we're with you know, our colleagues and any kind of caveat, you know, anything as a black person. I'm just like, ugh, I just cringe every time you say that. Same as yeah. I would cringe if someone says as a woman. I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, really? It's irrelevant. It's absolutely 100% irrelevant. What are we up to together and how can we forward that? That's really yeah. what the conversation to my mind makes sense. Absolutely. Um, do you want to add to that? Because <laughs> I think yeah. that's your perspective yeah, no, as well. No, I completely agree with that. And, you know, using the examples that I gave earlier, dropping that for a woman or for a black person, it's so important. I think if you make a comment like that, you should ask yourself, why did I find it required or needed or necessary for me to add that at the end of it why did i find it necessary and you should be honest with yourself and ask yourself why that is and i think if people spend the time asking themselves why they say certain things and why they act in a certain way they'd be able to understand what some of their prejudice are and what some of the stereotypes that they have in their mind which you know can be a daunting task for some individuals to kind of look at yourself in a mirror and say hey i'm actually not as you know anti-racist as I thought I was and this is how my behavior contributes to that but I think that is a personal responsibility that we all have to educate ourselves on that I'm very big on education and educating ourselves on you know just being a better individual being a better person for society and the communities that you're involved in I've definitely you know using your example of for a woman and things like that I've definitely been guilty of things like that. Or, you know, the saying that goes, oh, you're not just a pretty face, for example. You know, exactly. when, I was, when I was younger, that was definitely something that I would have said to a woman as a compliment, but sort of an educating myself and understanding what impact a statement like that has. Um, you know, I understand that that is inappropriate and I'd never say anything like that again. And I'm able to educate my younger brother. I'm able to educate <laughs> my other friends on why that is, you know, a harmful comment to make. And I think, the conversation around racism should be the same. Educate yourself on why certain comments aren't acceptable, understanding it so you don't do it again, but then also taking a step further and being able to you know, educate the people around you, your friends, your family, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I look at words as tools, actually. There's two that you've given us like, okay, why did I find the need to say that? If you add on that distinction, which is yeah. just weird. So I'm judging that. But anyway, yes, <laughs> I definitely think, why would I find the need to do that? That's a really good introspective, not rhetorical, but actual genuine question to ask. And then you said it before, and I want to highlight it. If someone does say something with much more malicious intent, it's like, what did you mean by that? Yeah. And, that, and that's a sentence that I've heard Babs has coached us. So Babs, co-founder of Strategic Coach. And this has been in the case of a man making an inappropriate comment to one of our team members. And it's like, well, what did you mean by that? And then it's like, or could you repeat that? Yeah. And then you watch their face kind of go, oops, I'm not going to be able to get away with that. And you see them just recoil if they have any kind of cognizance. Most of them do. But it's kind of fascinating. It's like, what do you mean by that? Or can you repeat that, please? And then they're like, oh, oops, which is great. It's asking a question rather than just saying you're an idiot, which 
I would probably want to do. I really like that strategy that you said. It's like, what did you mean by that? And then I get it. Ideally, it has someone reflect and go, oh, what did I mean by that? You know, that would be a great response. Or it's like, oh, no, I meant to insult you. Is someone actually going to say that? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But it highlights that awareness that that was not an appropriate or relevant thing to say. So stop right now. Absolutely. And the reason why that's so important to be able to do that is because it brings the focus on what's important. And I understand, you know, I'm not being insensitive to how a certain comment could have an impact on someone. But if you can, I'd, you know, ask people to just try and ask, what did you mean by that? Because if you respond in an inflammatory manner, you respond in an aggressive manner, then the focus goes on the aggression. The focus is on, oh my God, that person was so aggressive. What I said wasn't even that bad. And they start focusing on that. Whereas you want the focus to be on the initial comment, the initial microaggression that was made. So if someone says something and say, you know, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, explain that to me a bit more go further into it and you're actually by asking those questions not only are you holding up the mirror at the person saying hey look at yourself and look at what you're saying you're also inadvertently educating them on why that's inappropriate and the likelihood of them making a comment like that ever again is significantly decreased just by you asking some deeper questions what did you mean by that oh tell me more about that and they're more likely to go forward not making a comment like that to another black person and also even potentially educating their other friends and people and family members and whatnot, not to make comments like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when something is so subtle and it's just not many people are aware of it, you do, or again, I'll say for myself personally, I take it as a personal responsibility to educate people on it because I'm not going to do any good to the world. I'm not going to have a positive impact by just, responding aggressively to everyone that's microaggressive to me or responding in an overly emotional manner to everyone that's microaggressive to me because I'm not teaching them anything and they're going to go ahead and do it again to another black person but by me being able to ask them what they meant by that and even if I'm just able to educate them slightly I feel like I'm having a positive impact on that I'm not saying that's anyone's responsibility it's not your job to have to educate people but if you feel strongly enough about it and you know, you're in a position where you feel comfortable to be able to respond in a less emotional manner and just ask them what they mean and educate them on why what they're saying is inappropriate, you'll have a much more positive impact on the overall movement and the overall conversation. And I like that coach because it's actually great coaching for me. So I can ask that question if I'm hearing someone else say something. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like it doesn't have to be you. I can do it as your white colleague, yeah. if I hear a racist comment, I'm going to be like, what did you mean by that? You know what I mean? So I think that's just such a great strategy. I'm sorry, I'm all about strategies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to help kind of bring awareness. Let's shift a little bit. So that was super helpful. Thank you. Let's shift awareness a little bit because I'm very, again, just shocking how little I knew. We're in an interesting place in the world. One of the conversations that came up amongst our team when we had conversation was about the system that we're in, right? So let's talk a little bit about systemic racism and how we can do it. I think, you know, one of the things from our conversation so far, it's like at work, we have an incredible opportunity because we are part of an organization. We are striving towards the same goal. So we actually have an opportunity to have a level of connection and relationship with one another, which I think allows for these conversations to happen well and really powerfully, which I'm very happy about. And we are in a for-profit enterprise, right? The strategic coach is 
a profitable business. <laughs> One of the comments that came up in the discussion was around capitalism and also systemic racism. And you, again, pulled that apart from me because some people think that it's capitalism that is causing some of the oppression of opportunities yeah. for black people. But you have a slightly different take. Can you share that with us? Yeah, definitely. That is something that I'm seeing all over social media and all over the place at the moment that, you know, capitalism is racist and capitalism is the issue. Whereas I feel like capitalism isn't the problem. The problem is actually systemic racism. And my definition of capitalism is being able to be financially rewarded for the value which you bring to the marketplace. And we live in a meritorious society. You get what you deserve based on merit. So if you bring value to the marketplace, Money is the way in which we reward value in our society. So if you're able to bring value to the marketplace, you will be rewarded financially for the value for which you've created, which is the basis of capitalism as a concept. And that isn't racist at all. If anything, you know, a capitalist society, by the definition, is most advantageous for black people because it doesn't rely on nepotism. It doesn't rely on elitism. It doesn't rely on classism. It just relies on the value which an individual is able to create. And there's so many black individuals out there that have so much value to offer and can create so much value. But because of systemic racism, they're not in a position where they're able to bring that value to the marketplace. And it's just so unfortunate that capitalism happens to be the vehicle through which systemic racism is most prevalent. So that's why some people get confused about capitalism and systemic racism, thinking capitalism is the issue when it's actually systemic racism. You know, just in terms of the experience of a black person and a white person growing up. So let's use an example of a black person being born to a, a black family, of course, in a lower socioeconomic community in America. And then you've got a white person that's born to a middle-class family in the suburbs in America. Um, you know, the white person has access to better schools um, that is better funded. Therefore, they get a better education than the black person. So even just from the get-go, from the jump, the white person has the advantage in terms of a better education, therefore feeling like he's smarter than his black equivalent and the black equivalent feeling like he's not smart as his, you know, white counterpart. And then because of that, white people are able to go to better colleges, you know, based on going to better colleges, are able to have access to better education and then coming out of college, being able to get a better job and things like that. Whereas the black person doesn't have access to good education. So because of that, isn't able to go to a good college, for example, based on not being able to go to a good college, isn't able to, you know, get a good job and then having to work in industries or an environment that isn't allowing them to create value and bring value to the marketplace so they're not financially compensated, so they're denied access to wealth. And if we're to use those two individuals again, if the white person that's had that upbringing and the black person that's had that upbringing were both to apply for a business loan that had the exact same amount of risk, you know, had the exact same amount of potential opportunity and output, the white person and the black person, you know, both apply for this business loan, the bank teller that approves the loan says to himself, you know, I'm not a racist. I'm going to assess these loans objectively. And he looks at the loan from the white person who's had a good education, went to an Ivy League college, has worked at respectable corporations, has a good network, and, you know, is putting in this loan and also has houses and mortgages that they could use as collateral. That doesn't seem like such a risky investment. So, you know, the bank teller would approve that loan. But the black person that applies for the loan doesn't have a good educational background, didn't go to college, doesn't have good working experience, doesn't have a network 
to the bank teller that's a more risky loan and therefore doesn't approve the loan. So the bank teller goes home at night thinking, you know, I'm not a racist person. That was an objective decision. But because of systemic racism, the black person was never in a position for him to deserve that loan in the first place. And the world doesn't respond to need. The world responds to deserve. And through systemic racism, so many black people aren't in a position where they're able to deserve what they actually desire. What's important to kind of communicate is black people aren't asking for a handout or asking for charity. They're just asking to be allowed to be able to deserve the things which they desire. So being allowed the same quality of education, being allowed the opportunity to go to better colleges and get better jobs and get loans approved and having that access to wealth. And if capitalism was actually practicalizing capitalism, was you know carried out in the way in which it was intended there should be no advantage over one individual over another based on the color of their skin it should just be based on the value which they're able to create so if we're able to eradicate systemic racism from our community and our societies which won't be an easy task you know systemic racism is man-made their society was created to favor white people so unless an intentional action is taken to you know remove systemic racism from our community it's going to remain there it's not something that's just gonna you know seep out of our community there has to be some sort of intentional action and when that intentional action is taken systemic racism is removed black people have access to the same education have access to the same quality of life, have access to the same amounts of opportunities, then we'll be living in a truly capitalist society where everyone is able to bring value to the marketplace and everyone is compensated on the value for which they're bringing to the marketplace. So I believe capitalism is great. I'm a proud capitalist. And I think the problem is systemic racism. And if we are able to eradicate systemic racism from our society, we'll actually notice how capitalism and a capitalist society benefits you know, the average black person in their communities. Yes, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> that is so well stated. Thank you. And there are some capitalists, you know, some people who were like definitely favored their own interests and completely shut down any opportunities. I mean, it's atrocious to look back at some of the historical things and just, you know, how people would redline neighborhoods and, and having been to Africa, not Nigeria, unfortunately, but, yeah. you know, it was so, so, so crystal clear that education was the name of the game. You know, yeah. in the townships in South Africa and Cape Town, you know, it was so clear that education was the most important thing. I was so impressed. So we went to a crush, which is a daycare, essentially, and it's, yeah. it's in English. But I'm like, oh my gosh, what these kids are learning, and they're so little, and they were so happy. And so it was so clear that education is the way out in Africa. But that's yeah. also true in North America. It's true in the UK. So it's eliminating the barriers because then, without any barriers, black people are imminently capable, you know, and can yeah. rise in that system. And we see that with our clients in Strategic Coach, which is, you know, we have lots of different ethnicities in Strategic Coach. You know, we see some very, very, very successful human beings that just somehow found their way. And it creates more for everyone. You know, if anyone is thinking that this is a scarcity or a zero-sum game, that's just not accurate. Yeah. You know, the more value that... You create the foresight in the world, then that benefits me. And if I create value, that benefits you. So it just makes a bigger pie for all of us. You know, shutting yeah. down one segment of our population actually harms all of us. Absolutely. And being able to create value, you know, by giving black people the opportunity to be able to bring value to the marketplace gives the black person the opportunity to create financial 
reward and financial gain for himself and his family also allows that black person to create more value to the marketplace. So it's for the consumers, they have access to more things and more services and products, but also for the economy as well. When there's more value being created in, in the marketplace, the economy booms and you know, it's just a great outcome for everyone involved, for the individual, for the consumers and for the economy. So by actually you know, preventing black people the same access and the same opportunities, it harms everyone in the long run. But as I said, when you know, America was first founded or you know, when slavery was abolished, it was never intended to be a level playing field. It was never intended to you know, densely black people as the same as white people and with the same opportunities. Systemic racism was built into our community, into all aspects, even in healthcare as well, not just education. Systemic racism is everywhere. And being able to eradicate systemic racism is the most important thing. By removing that, people have access to better education, better healthcare. And you, know, you use the example of some of the ethnic minorities and black people who have strategic coaches that have gone on to achieve phenomenal things that just goes to show that you know we're capable and you know even in my experience I was very fortunate to go to a private boarding school here in the UK and there were a lot of black people at my boarding school and they've all gone on to you know achieve amazing things in their careers and the only difference between us and other black people that didn't have access to the same education is that education. You know, we had access to a better education. We had access to a better network in some regards and just being able to, you know, more inspiration in terms of what we see on a day-to-day basis. You know, we ended up leaving school having a different outlook on the world and gone on to, you know, achieve amazing things in some regards. So if we're able to, maximize that and give more black people access to a better education better healthcare, and you know just a better environment then we would have positive impacts in the uk i know at least a lot of the private schools are you know offer bursaries and allowing more students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to come in for a free ride and things like that and i think that's definitely a step in the right direction but we need to really maximize that again I was not completely unaware of this, thank goodness, but it's just really come into stark relief for me. It's like the systemic racism means that black people start so much further down. If you can see my hands right now, it's like one hand yeah. and one hand down. <laughs> it is such an unequal playing field. It's equal opportunity, which is what the movement's name's been given. Yeah. You know, it's just provide equal opportunity. Then it goes to merit. Then it goes to drive and ambition and capability. So it's yeah. not that those things are taken out of the equation. It's just not stacking the odds in one team's favor is really what this is about. And it makes for a better game. It makes yeah. for a more fulfilling society. It makes for a richer society. I mean, I live in Toronto, which is incredibly diverse, which I love. So there's a whole learning process for what life is actually like. Absolutely, um, For yeah. someone growing up black in the US or Canada or the UK. So what are some of the things that you see in terms of systemic racism that are, it looks like this massive, overwhelming project but what are some things that people can do to take action? Yeah, you know, as I said, education, that's the beginning for most individuals. So, you know, bringing new initiatives into the educational system that promotes black children and gives them more opportunities. And as I said, you know, systemic racism is man-made. That was artificially put in place to favor white individuals. So unless we put in man-made precautions and artificial precautions to favor black individuals, then that would never naturally occur. So by including more initiatives that gives access to black children to better education, and that doesn't mean, you know, 
giving out a certain amount of scholarships to talented black kids to private schools, but it actually means putting more funding into black neighborhoods and black communities and black schools, giving them access to better materials, giving them access to better teachers. You know, if teachers are better paid, then there'll be better teachers and things like that. So, you know, by artificially putting more funding into those areas and creating more opportunities for young black kids so they can go on and achieve their full potential, which is what it's all about. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of black people say, you know, I feel like I have to be 10 times better as my white counterpart to get the same opportunity. It goes back to them not having access to the same education or having access to the same society. So it has to be so explicitly obvious that this black individual is better than this white individual for them to get the opportunity and even then there's still a conversation around it so if we're able to level the playing field by you know as i said putting more funding into the educational system and and just giving everyone the same opportunities then you know we'll start to see a more level playing field occurring and you know more value being added to the economy and as i said a positive outcome for everyone involved Awesome. Thank you so much, Forsyth. And I think also just recognizing, asking those questions of yourself, why did I see the need to say that? Or, you know, just being very aware in your workplace of respecting everyone for what their contribution is. Anything else is kind of irrelevant. And just appreciating the history that a Black person in your organization might have their life experiences if you're white is going to have been very, very different. And just to appreciate that background. Most of us, I mean, there's a blindness and that's probably not relegated to my skin color that we think other people are kind of like us yeah not so much I'm, and so I'm, just looking for and appreciating the differences not having it be other just having it be another interesting human being on the other side of the table or beside you in, in the cafeteria or you know beside you in the cubicle you know just really appreciating each person's individual contribution and experience i think is at least yeah. for me, a little bit of the bottom line, and then just a really heightened awareness of what I'm walking into because I don't know. And asking, and I appreciate your openness, Forsyth, because you're someone who will tell his friends, ask me the tough questions. Ask me the questions you're not going to ask other people. And that openness and that willingness to educate and to elevate for yeah. me as your friend and colleague, I just really deeply appreciate that. So thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation today. I'm thrilled to be able to have it. It's not an easy conversation and it will be uncomfortable, but I hope for everyone listening that it has expanded your perspective. It has given you greater awareness and also greater encouragement to what you can do actually to make a difference. So Forsyth, any closing words before we wrap up? Only thing I'll say is as a human being, our natural predisposition is to be compassionate and to feel empathy for our fellow humans. So if we start from there, everything else is easy. Mm. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for being my colleague. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for having this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, I always love to hear them. Please let me know at questions at strategiccoach.com. And as always, here's to your team success. Mm-hmm.